0: Let's get our Bibles out, open to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, page 1356 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We are working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, this wonderful gift that God's given us in this letter. We're calling this series Flourish. It's about a people who flourished in the gospel in the midst of all of their amazing uh, challenges and persecutions and struggles, and yet... Uh, such an amazing encouragement to us to look at exactly how they were able to do this and how they leaned upon God and one another. And we want to be a people who flourish. And so God has been gracious to us as we've studied the past several weeks through this. And we come now to chapter 2. Let's pray and then we'll look at chapter 2 together. Pray with me. Father, we want to thank you for your word. And God, we are so grateful and so thankful that you have given us this word that, Lord, we know it's from you, that you breathed it into existence, and that it's intended for us, and that, Father, there are things that you want to show us this morning from your word, and so I pray that you just anoint my mouth and use these words to be a blessing to the hearers, that you'd give us ears to hear, and hearts willing to receive, that you'd be glorified through the teaching, preaching, and hearing of your word, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the the story of the Thessalonians is one of a people that were uh, in this sort of uh, thriving city. They were a people that were were going through their uh, ordinary course of life together, and they were doing the things that they were doing and had been doing for quite some time. And then the Lord invaded their uh, setting. He brought the gospel specifically to them. And it, it just causes us to initially just think to ourselves, well, why Thessalonica? Why these people? Of all the people He could have chosen, why these people? And we don't know the answer to that. All we know is that in the goodness and the graciousness of God, in His sovereignty, He chooses to to bring the Gospel at certain times in certain ways to certain people, and that 's what he does and that 's sort of the story that we have been watching unfold before us but in the, uh, as the Gospel invaded their setting by the Apostle Paul and his compadres as they were uh, as they moved in and began to, to teach the Word of God and to bring this uh, new message of the good news of the gospel into a a place that was completely pagan. And there were no churches that worshipped the, uh, the Savior. There were no uh, Christians there until they came. And then uh, as, the, as the transition uh, came to effect, as the gospel began to move across Thessalonica, you had those who responded to the gospel and became followers of Christ. And then you had those who rejected Just like uh, happens whenever the gospel invades a setting of a group of people. Just like happens today and has always happened and will always happen. And what we've been learning is that when our setting changes, we then begin to make choices that are going to impact and set our context that our lives tell a story and we're looking at the story of the Thessalonians and we're asking ourselves well what can that teach us about us and about our lives and about how we live and about the story that we're telling and so last week we looked at how they made choices about uh... things like character and that and their identity and how those choices had a huge impact upon their context of who they were as this group of believers well I want you to think this morning as we move into chapter 2 that that there are two significant choices that people must make whenever uh, God invades their setting and then transforms it with the gospel. Whenever we uh, receive Christ as Lord and Savior, there are two choices that whether we realize it or not, They're going to be made. They have to be made. Sometimes we recognize it. We have people around us who are giving us good counsel and who are uh, uh, talking to us and teaching us, so we would recognize it. Sometimes we're oblivious to it, but either way, the choices have to be made. And the two choices are simply this. The first choice is, who are we going to surround ourselves with? What company are we going to keep in this new setting that we're in? Because that is going to profoundly impact the story that our lives tell and then with that comes within the group of people that we surround ourselves with who are we going to emulate who are we going to look up to because whether we recognize it or not we allow people in and out of the the, the context of our lives we we create this uh, group of people that are, that are in close proximity to our lives, that are the people that we do life with. There are the company that we keep. And then within that, there are, we, we are influenced by things. We look up to things. We allow things to captivate our attention. We, we allow uh, things to be magnified in our, in our sight and in our heart. And those things that we look up to have a profound effect on the story that our lives tell and who We become. And so, as we sort of begin this look into chapter two, I want you to just think about for a minute you know, who are the people that you do company with, that you do life with, that you walk with, that are around you? Who are your friendships and relationships? Who are they? Those that you have chosen to allow in. Not those that were there maybe by birth or by blood, but those that you've chosen to allow in, and then who who has profoundly influenced your life? That whether we realize it or not, we are being influenced and our context is greatly being shaped by these decisions that that are being made around us. Now, the gospel, once it comes into your life, once your setting changes and the gospel comes into your life, there's responsibility. And I think a lot of times when we start talking about responsibility, we think of that in a negative context. In other words, that we, it, we think of that as something bad. I want you to think of that as something good. I want you to understand that in Genesis chapter 2, when God created the world, when everything was perfect, and He created everything perfect the way He intended for it to be, He says to Adam, now here's this perfect, sinless, amazing world, now... You have dominion over it. You work it and keep it. He gave Adam responsibility in the context of perfection. Now that should tell us something. That first of all, responsibility is not a negative thing. And second of all, that it should tell us something about us. That we were created to, be, uh, to not be whole unless we uh, embrace God's responsibility for us. That we, we need purpose we need meaning that God didn't create us to aimlessly wander through life do you see that he didn't say now here's a perfect here's a perfect creation Adam now you just go out there and just wander around and everything's gonna be fine God didn't make us that way there's something inside of us that desires to have meaning and purpose and it's we see it right from the beginning of creation Well. Fast forward to the New Testament. The world is now completely tainted with sin, broken with sin. The wages of sin are death. There's suffering and hurting everywhere. Then God invades the setting again. And this time He sends His Son. And His Son comes in the likeness of man and dwells among us as we've already said. And in this invasion now, a new setting is brought by the gospel. And there is yet again responsibility, but it's changed. The responsibility in a perfect world is simply to just embrace the the joy of the perfection of Eden and to just work it and tend it and be blessed by it, but in a broken world, that's not a responsibility anymore. Our new responsibility is to go out into all the world and to make disciples and to share this gospel that we have, to not to not uh, hold on to this good news that we have. But now our new responsibility is to be light to the world and salt to the world, right? And so, uh, hopefully you have a, a sermon outline there before you. Our responsibility, your first blank, is our responsibility with the gospel is grounded in the understanding of who invaded our setting and how He granted us the opportunity to flourish, now, I know some of you haven't even been able to sleep this week. You have been up at night just pacing the floor, chewing your fingernails just on pins and needles because you're so OCD and obs- that it's killed you that I missed some blanks last week at the end. And, and you've got that sheet sitting on the dresser incomplete and it's just been eating your lunch all week long. And you've, you've tried to guess a thousand different words that went in those blanks. But until you know for sure, you will not have peace. So you're just going to have to keep wondering. Okay, so here we go. I'm trying to heal you here through, through pain management. That's our responsibility with the gospel. You see, we, we will... Listen, when, when, when God tells Adam, here's your responsibility in the garden, that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing, it's a blessing. So God brings the gospel into our lives and He says, now here's this unbelievable responsibility that you have. You get to embrace this amazing great news. It's invaded your setting. And it's given you the opportunity to flourish. Without it, you have no opportunity to flourish. Now go with it to all those out there that don't have an opportunity to flourish and share it. Now what we're going to do is look at what Paul does as, he, as we have been. We're going to look at beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to watch the way Paul and conducts himself and the things he does. And what we're going to do is rather than walk through this and talk about all the ways that Paul illustrates to us what we ought to be doing, we're going to flip it around do something a little bit different this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at it and we're going to see the dangers that are before us if we don't, if we don't take to heart the way Paul... Uh, the, the way Paul came to Thessalonica and the way he ministered to them and loved them, and it will show us three specific areas that our hearts can become blind to the responsibility we have in the gospel all right let 's look first Thessalonians chapter two verse one. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict for our encouragement or exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness but was but was it in was not in nor was it in deceit now notice here that Paul says first of all that our coming to you was not in vain that it wasn't empty that it was that it was for something that it yielded something and and but what Paul is telling us is he's given us a glimpse into the heart of God. That God loves you. God loves people. God loves his creation to the extent that he, he invades their setting. Now, through people, so he sends Paul. And that when Paul gets there and shares the gospel, that it's not in vain. So if you're, if you're, if you're hearing this and you're in the church at, Thessalonica, you would say to yourself, wow, God loves me. He, he loves me enough to, to allow me to be able to be exposed to the good news of the gospel. And Paul is saying, listen, you're worth it. That God loves you so much. And He cares for you so much. That when He sent the gospel to you, it wasn't in vain. That it, it came and it, it yielded something fantastic. And Paul wants us to know that even in his coming, it wasn't like, it wasn't like going to Thessalonica was an easy uh, ride. It wasn't like it was a, a something that you know he did because he could gain fame or he could gain some human renown or celebration. No, he says, as you know, they were, they were suffering before and they were spitefully treated, Philippi. You remember in, in Acts 16, what Paul's talking about is uh, when... He was in Philippi, and as he was going around sharing the gospel, there was a young girl who was following him around. And the Bible says she had a spirit of divination. She was possessed. She was demon-possessed. And everywhere that Paul went and everywhere that he was sharing the gospel, this girl would follow him around, and she was shouting and screaming. And this went on for days and days and days. And finally, the Bible says that Paul, greatly annoyed, turned to her, and he cast the demon out of her. He healed her. Now you would think, wow, what a great thing. Paul just, uh, he just radically uh, altered this young girl's life. He just changed this girl's life forever. And, and the torment and the anguish that she's been in all of her life just came to a screeching halt. Everyone would be thrilled about that. But no, uh, the, those who owned her, she was a slave girl, and those who owned her had been making a lot of money off of her and so they would take her around and then people would pay to come and 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 ask her questions or you know listen to the things she would say and so on and so forth and so they were furious when Paul cast the demon out and so that starts a big you know ruckus and next thing you know uh, they grab Paul they beat him they strip him they throw him in uh, jail and so it's there that he's in jail and he's singing songs to God. And you know the story. As he's singing, the jailer is listening and thinking, what in the world is wrong with these people? They've been beaten and stripped naked and thrown into prison, and they're singing to God. And an earthquake comes, and the building shakes, and all the doors pop open, all the chains are loosed, and everyone's free to go. And you know the story. The jailer is there, and and Paul knows that if he leaves... Uh, If he just runs away and escapes, this jailer will die. And he stops and the jailer falls down and asks him how he can be saved. And the next thing you know, Paul's at the jailer's house. And as they're washing his wounds and he's sharing the gospel with the jailer and his family. And all of them become followers of Christ and are baptized. And so the story of the Philippian jailer comes from this Uh, this moment that just preceded Paul's arrival at Thessalonica. And so there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of suffering and a lot of struggling that came from that moment. But here's the thing. We read that and we have to say to ourselves now, you can see that God God sent Paul to Philippi specifically to invade their context. And there were specific things that were going to happen and they did and there was people there that that God loved very much you know i don't i have no idea sometimes i think of things and and i i realize that i'm to the age now where i didn't even realize they had changed and then i think back and go oh yeah things really used to be that way and somehow this week i was somewhere and i saw a man reach in his pocket and pull out his wallet and in his wallet, he had the little plastic, you know, places for, for pictures in his wallet. Now, do any of you have, have that in your wallet? Any men in here? I haven't seen one of those in forever. We got one guy. <laughs> Brother Richard, for Christmas, needs a new wallet because that sucker's got to be old. See, when I was younger, I had, when you bought a man's wallet, it had those slots already in it. See, we don't carry pictures around anymore. Why? We have a phone. They're all on our phone. But we used to, would take pictures and, you know, I know the young people are thinking, what? Yeah. And we had, like, when I was a teenager, like, that's how you knew that if you had a new girlfriend, you put a picture. You don't change your status. You put a picture in your wallet. That's how you knew the status. See? I'm just telling you. Now it's as if there's a picture of the Philippian jailer in God's wallet. You see? And he loves this jailer. And he has a plan for this jailer. And all these events take place so that God can orchestrate this amazing change in the context of this jailer and his family. You see, God has put me and you, just like He did Paul, in certain places with certain people for specific purposes. Listen, we're not just randomly located somewhere on earth. We're not just wandering around. No, no. We have this this fantastic responsibility in the gospel that will, will yield purpose. Regardless of, you see, this is part of the problem is that so many times we're running around trying to find our purpose in things that God didn't make to be our purpose. The most miserable people in the world are people trying to find their purpose in their job or people trying to find their purpose in their their looks or people trying to find their purpose in their financial standing or whatever the case, their family or their performance or whatever it is, they're miserable because that's not what God intended. But God did intend for us to embrace this responsibility in the gospel and find purpose in it. And part of it is just recognizing that, listen, you're where you are for a reason, for a reason. You, you're God's agent, and you're there for a reason. And there's specific people around you for specific purposes. And so God, you know, I wonder sometimes. I, I've been thinking about this all week. I've been thinking like, you know, because I'm just weird like that. I just think these visual thoughts. And so when I'm in, waiting in line in the store or I'm in the elevator with someone or something, then I, lately I just, I'm thinking, well, I wonder if God has their picture in His wallet. You see? And, and so it compels me to, to talk to them. And, you know, sometimes I'm... Uh, it just depends on my context. See, sometimes, if, like if I'm in the hospital and, I get, and I'm in the elevator, and, you know, my favorite thing to happen is when I get in the elevator at the hospital and there's just one other person gets in the elevator with me. You see, I already know that if you're at the hospital and you're not wearing scrubs or a uniform, I already know a little bit about what's going on, you see. And so what I do is instead of just what everyone else does and looks at the floor and stares at the numbers as if, you know, just in this, or gets their phone out and pretends not to care, I just look at the person. And I say, how are you today? How are you? And you know, more often than not, especially if it's a female, they start crying as soon as I ask that question. Because they're there under stressful circumstances. See, and, and, and I just think, you know, I want you to know something. God loves you. And, and I care about the fact that you're hurting and we'll step, it'll go ding and the door open. We'll step out of the elevator and i say, can I pray for you? You know, what's your husband's name or your nephew's name or your cousin's name or your neighbor or co whoever you're here to see, can I pray with you for them? And I'll pray. And maybe sometimes I'll write down their, their room number. And so if I have time, I'll just go by there. And then I'll tell the person in the room. I'll say, hey, I met somebody that really cares about you today. I just want to know we, we prayed for you. It's because... God's got a bunch of pictures in his wallet, and he loves you. And it wasn't wasn't an accident that I ended up on the elevator with you or standing in line with you, or whatever the case may be. You see, with receiving the gospel comes this responsibility, this good, I wish I had another word, this wonderful responsibility to manage the gospel, to be a steward of what we've been given. And this is what we see Paul doing as, he's, as, he's, as he comes to Thessalonica. That he, he recognizes, listen, he's been beaten and, and wounded and thrown in jail. And, and he's just happy as he can. Now what in the world would make somebody in that context happy? It's because he knows that he's in a, a specific place with specific people for a specific purpose. And so even though that, you would think most people after that trip to Philippi is thinking, man, I I'm done. But no, he goes on to the next city. And so he came through trouble. But you know what? He's, he's saying, hey, you're, you're important enough. I'm coming to you through trouble. It doesn't matter how bad it was. I'm coming to you. And so he does. Look at verse 4. But as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, you see that, how he's Again, embracing this responsibility. Even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God is the one who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is a witness of that. Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Listen, he's saying it is no accident that I came into contact with you. And that God has orchestrated these events and He has sent me and He entrusted me with the gospel and therefore I now am stewarding that by, by taking it into whatever context God leads me to. And so now I've come in contact with you. And what a great gift that is. You know, what you'll find as you read through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is that it, you know, Paul oftentimes can be portrayed or maybe come across as somebody who was uh, a little bit harsh. And, and, you know, he could be harsh when he needed to be, but he is a man of amazing tenderness and love, as you'll see this morning and on through this entire letter that he writes. He loves this church so much. It's just so warm and so amazing, His, his deep love for them and for what is happening amongst them and for how the gospel is working amongst them. And you know what happens to us is that there are these these dangers, these these blind spots that can come up in our life that we can be in the same setting. Listen, just like people can be in the same setting that you and I uh, came to Christ in and not come to Christ. You can come to Christ in the same setting as a group of people within that group that, that are, that are born-again believers in Jesus Christ in a setting together, then there's a whole diversity within that group. Based on what? Choices that we make. You see? You see, not, not, there's, there's a, a, if, we, if we group together everyone in this room right now who belongs to Jesus, who's a child of God, we would find that not everyone equally embraces the responsibility that they have in the gospel. There are some of you in this room that that sharing your faith with somebody, just the thought of that just utterly freaks you out, that you've never done that before. Some of you are so new to Christianity that you, this is all brand new. Some of you have, have been Christians for decades and you don't share your faith. And, and you, don't, you don't look at, at people that are around you as specifically being placed there. And it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, but it does mean that you have become blind to some some reality or some area. And so there's three areas I want to caution, caution us in from this text this morning that we might become blind in. Blind spot number one is that we live disconnected. You see, the first thing we need to be very careful about when we're talking about our responsibility to steward the gospel is we don't want to live disconnected. Paul clearly understood the importance of not living disconnected. And here's why we don't need to live disconnected because every single believer is a missionary. Every believer is a missionary. If you're saved, you're a missionary. And you say, well, wait a minute. I mean, I don't feel like a missionary. When did I become a missionary? You became a missionary the moment you were saved by God. And you're saying, well, where did I become a missionary to? To the context in which God placed you. He put you in a place. And you're a missionary to that place. But what happens is if we become blind, we get disconnected to that. And here's what happens. We we disengage from our context. We start to live as if we're just randomly where we are. We just we begin to lose sight of, of, of this, this opportunity we have to flourish and to, to embrace our purpose and find our meaning in what God's, the, the glorious responsibility that He's given us is. You see, every single place that your feet tread on this earth, whether it's the grocery store or the doctor's office, whether it's, it's the... the the workplace in which you walk into every day, every single place that you go and every place in between those places that you go, you're a missionary to those places. It's your mission field. You see, your mission field is different from my mission field and it's different from the people that are sitting in the pew behind you's mission field because you 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 don't go to the places they go. You don't visit the people they visit. But there are people that are your mission field. And they're there. And you can become disconnected from that. They, they can just be passing faces sort of in, the, in the, the wilderness. You see, because what happens is how in the world does that happen? How could we become disconnected from the most important thing in the world? How could we, as, how could we be children of God and yet be disconnected from... Our purpose. Like that almost seems impossible. But really it's, it's very simple. What happens is. Is that we elevate the urgency. Of all these other things that are going on around us. And then we become, we become blind to the reality. Of what's really going on right in front of us. Here, here's what I mean. It's like think about your life. And. Think about the ways in which the enemy uses your life to disconnect you from your purpose. What he does is he just makes you swamp busy. He makes you always running late. He makes you never able to have enough time to get the kids from this practice to that practice. You're running from from work to here. You only have a short lunch break, so you're zipping in, you're zipping out. You're always running late as you're in the drive-thru. You don't have time to stop and say, hey, how are you doing today? And what's happened is all the things that are going on in your life, the urgency of those things are, is elevated above something. All these things that are really just, you know, they, they have the, the potential to be these amazing opportunities, but we're just elevating other things. Our schedules create this environment where we just disconnect from all these things that are going on around us and we lose our purpose. So here's what I want you to see, that... Busyness is the enemy of purposefulness. You see, the busier you are, the less likely it is that you're going to fulfill your purpose. And look, this is me saying this. I mean, there's never enough hours in a day. I mean, I don't even know what it would feel like to lay down and close my eyes and think you know, wow, uh, you know, I got, I got all my plates empty today. That, that's, never, that's never happened. It never will happen. There's always more things barking at me than I can get to or deal with or even focus on. But a long time ago, I learned something. I learned that if I didn't learn how to handle those things, if I didn't learn how to keep those in the right perspective, then it was going to cost me greatly. So, you see, there, there, might be something, uh, there might be something urgent going on in your life. But there's always something urgent going on in my life. But I have to have levels of urgency. And you see, for me, for example, I can't be so devoted to the things that are calling to me that I don't spend my time in prayer. I have to pray. to to be the person that I need to be, to know the things I need to know, to hear the words I need to hear. Now, have you ever tried to, to, to get alone in your closet with God and shut the world out and begin to pray, and you knew that there was a fire burning around you? See, most people can't do that. You have to get all these things off your mind before you can pray. And here's the thing, you're never going to find your purpose. Never going to find your purpose. If you're just allowing all the things around you to steal away all the opportunities that God's got before you. No matter how late I am, no matter how many things I have, I have to remember that those people that are in my path, God's got a picture of them in His wallet you know five more minutes to stop and say a little extra time to just pull in there'll be somebody who's on my heart and, and uh, that I'm really ministering to and praying for that you know and I, and I sense that their cl- setting is about to change and you know when I'll see them I'll always see them when I'm busiest. Always. When I have the most things on my mind to do, then I'll see them. And it's God's way of reminding me, just stop what you're doing. Because listen, it's not by accident that I am seeing them right now. It's by God's design. Listen, you're a missionary to your context. You're going to be a horrible missionary. If you think your mission is to run around and fill your schedule with 900 things and go from A to B constantly all day long spinning around, mm -mm. that's not embracing the responsibility. That's being disconnected from it. You see, that's why God, listen, here's the God of the universe. Certainly, uh, He's got a lot of things going on. But when the fullness of time had come, He just stopped everything. And sent his son, didn't he? Yeah you see, he knows he's trying to tell us something. if we're not careful we're going to disconnect our story from the people around us and we 're going to lose sight of why we're here. now there's two primary ways we disconnect let's move quickly. The first one is this we 're going to disconnect spiritually. Come on, just listen for a second we're spiritually we'll, we'll, we'll Let's think about what the Bible says about the people that we meet every day. It says in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The Scripture is telling us that we started out full of sin. That before we even started breathing air, we were full of sin. That from the beginning we were born separated from God. Psalm 58, 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb, and they go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. And then we need to—we will disconnect spiritually from the reality of the, the, the people around us. We'll disconnect spiritually to the need that they have. We'll get, we'll get disconnected and we'll get lulled into believing that, well, people that, are, that seem nice and that are doing good things and things like that, that maybe they're okay. And that, listen, every single person, regardless of how vile they may appear to you or how nice they may appear to you, every person is born separated from God. And we, need to, we can't disconnect from that. See, we need to connect to the reality of who we were and who we are now. Now, let's think about how else we, disconnect. We, don't, we want to disconnect. we don't want to disconnect from the truth. For example, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, And you He made alive, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, The Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Listen, you can't disconnect from that reality. You cannot get in an elevator and disconnect from the reality of who may be standing there or disconnect from the reality of who's in the cubicle next to you or who moves into the house across the street from you or who seems to be the, 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 the teller every time you go to the bank or the girl who checks you out every time you go to the store or whatever the case may be that these people are there for a reason. You can't disconnect to the spiritual reality of what's going on with them. But we'll keep reading in Ephesians 2. But God, the Bible says. See, we were completely separated from God, completely given over to the lusts of the world and completely at the mercy of the prince of the air. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Now listen, you can't disconnect from that. You can't, you can't, you can't say, wait a minute now, here I am alive by the mercy of God. I've been granted life, new life. By grace, I've been saved. But you know, maybe God has a picture of you in his wallet, but I don't really care. I don't really care. I don't have time. I I gotta I I gotta get to ball practice. I I gotta get over here. I'm running late for this meeting. I'm doing. You see, you can't disconnect spiritually from that reality. But then there's more. Sometimes we don't disconnect spiritually or we do. And then on top of that, we disconnect physically. We just disconnect ourselves physically from the people around us. Now, I want us to think about Paul in this context. Paul was the master of connecting. He was so good at always being mindful of his purpose and always being mindful of what it is that God had created and called him to do above all other things. And so here's what he does. He forces himself always to be in the context of unbelievers and yet at the same time he's balancing that with being in the context, the community of fellowship with believers. He doesn't disconnect physically he connects physically with unbelievers and in community with believers at the same time. Now, we oftentimes don't do that. I'm sure that there's some of you in the room right now, you don't even know any lost people. You know them, but you don't know that they're lost because you, don't, you just don't know them. You're not around them. You live in a bubble. You think you live in a bubble. You, everyone around you, you know, goes to church and they're a Christian. And so you live in this little bubble and you think, well, but Paul didn't do that. What would he do the first time he walked into a new place? Where would he go? He would go straight to the synagogue where there was no followers of Christ. And he would begin to teach Christ. And then he would go straight into the marketplaces, right? And he would, start to, he would purposely connect with the unbelievers. But then what else would he do? As people began to come to Christ, he would, he would set up community with them and live and do life amongst them both at the same time. Not either or. Acts chapter 17, look at this record of Paul's first arrival at Thessalonica. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollia, uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was, a, there, there was a synagogue of Jews. Then Paul, as was his custom, went into them. And for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So The first thing he does is spends three weeks in the synagogue. Now there's nobody in there that's saying, yeah, come on in and tell us about Christ. No, they don't want to hear it. But he goes straight in there for three weeks explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying that this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks, but not a few of the leading women uh, came to Christ and joined Paul and Silas. But then what happened? We keep reading. Verse 5. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Now, why did they attack Jason's house? He didn't have anything to do with this. Because where was Paul living in Thessalonica? Jason's house. In other words, he's every day waking up and connecting with a lost world and then coming back and living in community with believers. As soon as people start coming to Christ, he engages them in community. And so he's not disconnecting from his surroundings. And so that's why when you look at chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, you see the, the, the really the most powerful place in this whole narrative comes in verse 8. Where in the beginning Paul says, So affectionately longing for you, he says. That Paul had this deep love and this longing for them. And he's saying, don't you see? You can't disconnect from this or you're going to miss the whole point. To, to affectionately long... Oh, this is such an amazing word. It's, it's, a, it's to have this strong... Uh, desire to be with someone but not just a, a one-time thing but to ongoing have this fellowship with someone it's a word that was used to describe the feeling that a parent has who loses a child and how they would maybe say I, how I long to be with you again how I long to to see you again how my heart longs for us to be together that's the power of the, of Paul's longing to be with his his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica Oh, he, he loved them. And so it's going to protect us from blind spot number two, which is we live divided. You see, we're not, it's not only that we live some disconnected, but then we live divided. In other words, what we do is we live a duplicitous life. We live a life that is divided literally into quadrants. There's the, the church you, and then there's the world you. There's, the, there's the, the amazing capacity that we have to uh, live in this context in which God has placed us with this amazing opportunity to write this amazing story that there's no limit to the degree to which you can flourish where you are. And yet, and yet we live a divided life. Now here's what I mean by divided. Either we give the gospel and withhold ourselves or we give ourselves and withhold the gospel. You see, we divide our life up. And so what we'll do is, we'll, we'll say, well, I'm going to embrace my responsibility in the gospel, so I'm going to share the gospel with people. And so we'll share the gospel with people. But we'll, we're not going to share ourselves with them, we're just going to share the gospel with them. So we're going to walk through the, 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 the malls, or go to the truck stop and just hand out tracks to people. And feel like, well, we've accomplished our task. But I'm not going to share myself with them. I'm not going to get in a relationship with them. I'm not going to allow myself to allow them in. I'm just going to share the gospel with them and then I'm done. Now Paul didn't do that. That's a blind spot. Or there are people that we meet in our context. See, some of you have these people that you work with and you really, really like them. And they're funny and they're fun and you have a lot in common and you built a relationship with them and you've never shared the gospel with them. And you really love them and care about them. But the reason you don't share the gospel with them is because you don't want to make the relationship awkward. And you really enjoy having them in your life so you enjoy sharing yourself with them but you don't share the gospel with them. You're living a divided life. You're dividing yourself into you and your life and then the gospel and this external part of you and you're, you're, you're making it seem as if those are two separate things and they're not. They're not. It's a blind spot. And you can be saved and be in the context of flourishing people and wonder sometimes like, This I see so many times when when I'm having a conversation with somebody who is in the context that I'm in. And I see you in the context. I see you here. I see you in Sunday school. I see you. And we're having a conversation. And they say to me, Pastor, I'm I'm lonely. I'm lonely. And I think, lonely. Lonely. You have all these people around you, but you're lonely. Why are you lonely? You're lonely because they're there, but you're not, giving your, you're not giving yourselves to them. You're just there. You're just in the seat next to them. You're just in the room with them, but you're not sharing your life with them. It's not that you, you uh, go to them and you invite them into your life and And uh, they don't, you know, they don't want to be in your life. There are people who will be in your life that you can do life with. And you say, well, no, there's not. Well, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Because God loves you and He's sovereign. So don't tell me, no, there's not. That's not true. It's not true. It is not true. You are not somewhere... God doesn't put the children that He loves so much that He paid the ultimate price for. He doesn't put you in a context where you're going to be lonely. He said it's not good for you to be what? Alone. So if you're telling me that there's no one around you in your context who you can share your life with, then God has failed you. And that's simply not true. That is not true. No, no. You have a problem. You, maybe you're living your life divided. And so you need to to bring these things together and you need to begin to embrace the reality of the purpose for which God created you so in the context of the community in which God's placed you and live your life. You see, here's what we do. We'll share the gospel with somebody. But I mean, is it really the gospel if you just give them information and you don't tell them about the reality of your own struggles and the trials that you face and the journey that you're on with God. You see, I mean, I don't know about you. Maybe you've had different experiences than me. But I tell you what, I've been a part of a lot of people coming to faith in Christ. A lot of people. So I think I'm pretty good at knowing some things about how people typically come to Christ. And they don't come to Christ when you walk up and say, do you know that Jesus died on the cross for you and rose again? If you repent and give your life to Him, then you can become a Christian. It's a little bit more than that. It's about when you open yourself up, when you begin to... To talk about your journey, when you begin to talk about your struggles and your challenges, it becomes real, it becomes tangible, it becomes something that people can relate to. You see, here's what the world needs to see in you the world doesn't need to, the world needs to see in you, it needs to hear the gospel coming from your lips, but it needs to see the gospel working itself out in your life now. One of the reasons why so many people are turned off by the gospel and why so many people fail miserably at sharing the gospel and why so many times we find ourselves in awkward situations when we're talking about the gospel is because we're not opening ourselves up and the only thing that can come from that is you're going to present this idea that you're perfect. What you got to do is open your life up and say, Listen. Let me tell you who who I was. And let me tell you what God did. And let me tell you who I still am. And every day I wake up and the, the Spirit and the flesh are warring within me and I still sin and I still fail and I still struggle and I still doubt and I'm still fearful and I'm not perfect. But I know Jesus. You see, that's compelling. You, you're You're... you're your life has to be whole. It can't be divided. Your evangelism can't be simply a, a, a combination of you know, who you were before you were saved and how you struggled right after you got saved as if now you got everything together. Now, I love to tell people I'm a pastor. Man, I'm still working this thing out. God's still working on me all the time. He's still grinding on me and sharpening and working and moving and still, and it's wonderful. So you just come on and 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 and, and join this this journey that we're on together. That we listen. I haven't made it, but I'm going to make it. Amen. Amen. See Paul, look at what he says. Look at the rest of verse eight. He says we were. Well, pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. Come on now. Is Paul divided? But what else? Look at what it says. But also our own lives. Do you see how he connects everything? Do you see how he brings it all together? Paul's saying, Listen, I didn't just come to you with the gospel. I didn't, I mean, I didn't just come and put a billboard up in your city and then leave. No. I came, and I shared the gospel, and then I opened my life to you. Open my life to you. That's what God's calling us to do. Listen, where the gospel flourishes, people share their lives with one another. That's where it flourishes. You, have you ever noticed, especially like this, this time of year, where we especially are very... Uh, Uh, strategic and intentional about there's all we're just there'll be a thousand different gatherings of groups of people that'll come together have a christmas party do this do that we'll get together for all these different reasons during the holidays and as we do that just look around the room maybe think about right now i mean who do you open your life up to who have you are you sharing life with And if you're in a a context, in a community where there are other people that you're sharing your life with, watch what happens when unbelieving people come in contact with that community. It will absolutely blow their mind. One of the most compelling uh, uh, evangelistic things we can do is, is just inviting people into the context of a wonderful community where you're sharing your life with people. Sometimes I'm by myself and I'm sharing the gospel with somebody that's connected to somebody that I know. And so we have a mutual connection. And so I start talking and the person says to me, they go, you know all that about them? I go, yeah. And they're thinking all those hundreds of people in your church... And you know all those details about, you know, my cousin or my uncle or my whatever. Yeah, I do. And I can see their wheels turning. I can see them thinking, wow. You see, it's compelling that, you know, we, we, we want to do life together. And so he says, but we also shared our own lives he said, because you see that where at the end he says, because you have become dear to us in the New King James, that word dear, that is the that word is the same word that Peter uses in his letter to describe the blood of Jesus that's translated the precious blood of Jesus. That's how precious that is. So, I mean when we when I use the word dear, I'm I'm I mean that's like the most uh, um, non uh, close and compassionate, intimate word I can use. That's not that, that word is precious like the blood of Jesus is precious to a believer. That's the preciousness of how they had become to Paul. You say, well, how do I share my own lives with people? Well, first of all, for the last, I don't know how long, we've been talking about this through uh, our study of the Great Commission. Is that here in just a, a, a number of weeks when we get to January, we're going to be starting D groups all over this church. A D group, if you don't know, is just simply four people that are going to do life together for nine months to a year. They're going to get together once a week, every week. They're going to read their Bibles every day. They're going to to meet together. They're going to talk about what they've read together. They're going to talk about what's going on in their life every week for a year. And for... For many of you, you're very excited about this. You're very excited about being a part of a D group. For some of you, you, you want it, but you're afraid. Oh, boy. Now, I can't, I can't say everything that I said in, in eight weeks as we went through all this. But let me suffice it to say this. It is the responsibility that God gives gives us now as New Covenant believers, just like He gave Adam in the garden, your responsibility is to make disciples, not converts, disciples. So that is you share the gospel with people and then you invite them into your life. Now, here's an opportunity for you to be in the inside of people's lives. And if you're worried about being able to read the Bible every day, or if you're worried about knowing something to say or something, then you, then you are allowing Satan to completely derail you and rob you of one of the greatest opportunities you could ever have in your life. It that has nothing to do with that. It's literally reading five to ten minutes a day. It's about doing life together, together. And there's going to be, you know, a hundred of you or more that are going to be uh, just radically transformed forevermore by this process. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, I want to be a part of that, but I didn't sign up. Okay, you can. I want to be a part of that, but I didn't go to, I don't know anything about it. Okay, you can. What do you need to do? Go to Sunday school class and raise your hand and say to your Sunday school class, I want to be a part of a D group. Who in here is in a D group? I want to be a part of a D group. Let your Sunday school teacher know you want to be a part of a D group. And you say, well, I don't have a Sunday school class. Okay, well, then come to starting point this morning. It's a perfect time for you to come. We're we're starting a brand new session this morning. And come to starting point, and I'll help you. And you'll get acclimated to this fellowship. But listen, you can be a part of it. It's just four people doing life together. Blind spot number three. See, sometimes we're disconnected. Sometimes we're divided. But then sometimes we live desensitized. We're just desensitized to the world around us. We forget what it feels like to be a, 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 someone who doesn't know Jesus. We forget what it feels like. We forget, we forget the the... We we can't we no longer empathize with the feeling of, of hopelessness or we we forget what it what it's like to have uh, sin to have total dominion over your life and feel helpless like a slave to your uh, to your desires and to your lusts. And again, I think so many times it happens in in busyness. Except for when we're desensitized to it, here's what happens: we get busy doing the things that we're doing. And that busyness divorces us from compassion to the world around us. We lose compassion for the world around us because we're just too busy doing things. So we don't, because it takes time to care. It takes time to get emotionally invested. You see, we have reasons for being divided. We have reasons for being desensitized. Because when, when, when I start talking about uh, sharing your life with people, the first thing that many of you think of is, man, that's risky. I mean, some of you just have built walls around you because you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been burned. And so you don't want to share your life with you. You don't want anybody on the inside. Because you want to stay where it's safe. And you want to stay where, you know, you, you, know, you don't have to risk that. You don't have to open up and, and, and then potentially be wounded. But see, to me, it's worse to be walled in. Because you never experienced your purpose. That it's worth getting wounded every once in a while. It's worth the pain of, and disappointment of being betrayed or, or hurt. It's worth it because, listen, when it, when it is good, it is so phenomenal. I don't want to become desensitized to that. And I don't want you to either. You know, every chance I get, I try to, you know, go stick my head into the children's ministries. I like to go see what's going on there. I like to, I like to just walk in and unannounced and look in the window and see what's going on with the kids. And, and a lot of times I get to do that because you know, I'll go in there to see my wife or service will be over and I'll go in there there'll still be some children in there and there'll still be some workers in there and I get to watch how they're interacting with the kids. And especially with the small children in the nursery department, you know, here's what you notice, that, that if you stand up and you look at a kid and you can say the most wonderful, true, encouraging things to that kid, Right? To, a, to a, a baby, even a two year old, you can, you can say, you can, you can stand up and look at that kid and say, Do you know how much I love you? Do you know what a great future you have? Or I could just open the Bible and start reading scripture to them, and they're just going to look at you like this and probably ah, start crying. And you're saying wonderful things. And they're freaking out. But if you get down on the floor and you look at them and you change to that stupid voice and go, Hey, do you know God loves you? And they smile. And you just said the same thing. But you see, when you get down and you say it like that, in that weird way that they... And then they start, they smile at you. Because you're, you're on their level. You know what I see us do sometimes? We, we get desensitized. And we talk to new believers. As if they've been sitting in church for the last 20 years. you got to talk to a babe in Christ the way you talk to a child. you got to get on their level. And you got to talk to them in, in simplistic terms. And you and, and you, and, and you got to be a blessing to them and invite them into your life. And don't be desensitized to... You know, if the first thing you're thinking about is all uh, is how needy they're going to be, because they're going to be needy. Babies are needy. Baby Christians are needy. They have a lot of questions. They need answers to. They, they You know, this is all new to them. But they need somebody who's willing to get on their level and talk to them about where they are and about what they're facing, and about what they're doing. And invite them along the way. Do you see what Paul does? He As soon as people start coming to faith, he, he immediately just comes right he's not desensitized if ever there was a person who had every reason to be desensitized it was Paul but he wasn't he just embraced him and brought him right into his life so he says in verse 10 so you're witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, Paul says, you know, it was like a father to you. And I wasn't just barking like a drill sergeant, but I got on your level. And I talked to you where you are. And I, I, I nurtured and loved you along the way for the time that we had. And I, I opened my life to you. I guess my question for all of us this morning is are you embracing and engaging your context? Where you are this morning are you embracing and engaging your context? It's the only way you're going to fulfill your purpose in this life. We don't want to be blind We don't want to to allow ourselves to be disconnected or desensitized or divided. No. But we want to do life with people. We want to engage as a family. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to stand in a few minutes. And then you're going to stand and bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray that God would give you sight to see. To see the people that are in your context that maybe you've been missing that maybe as you close your eyes and, and, and you listen to me pray, you begin to see faces of people that, that, that look out the, the drive through window and hand you coffee every day. Faces of people that you see walking across your office or passing by your periphery somewhere or somebody that you see in the parking lot over and over and over wherever you go or some checkout lady or whatever it is, that faces of people that are in your context And you want to embrace those. And you want to begin to open your life up to them. And you don't want to be blind to what's going on before us. And that in doing so, your purpose wouldn't be your job. Your purpose wouldn't be, you know, how much money you could make or what you could do or what people thought of you. But your purpose would be found in being a good steward. Being taken, embracing the responsibility that God's given you in the gospel. And so then wherever you are, that's all secondary. See, I know people that have terrible jobs. They hate their job. Their job is hard. And every, they dread Monday morning. But it's not about your job. Don't find your purpose in your job. I want you to think about the people who don't know Christ in your office. And realize your purpose is in being a good steward of the gospel for them. For them. Maybe it's time for you, I don't know, your context. Maybe it's time for you to, to invite your boss or your coworker, the person that drives you crazy, the biggest thorn in your side, you know. It's time for you to embrace them and invite them into your life so that you can begin to share the gospel with them. Okay, let's stand and bow our heads and close our eyes.